This is Duke University. I'm going to ask each of the panelists to take uh, no, no more than three minutes each to uh, tell you what the... I know, it's funny. <laughs> Again, wildly impractical. Uh, just to tell you uh, what they do for a living and, and, and why they're here so that you'll get a context for what it is they, they say. You've heard enough about me. So I'm going to start with the Cish and we'll just go right down the... Uh, and end with Bob Tabor, and we'll just go right down here, and they can tell you what their role in life is, and we'll go from there. Okay. Um, so, I thought when when I when when uh, Marshall told me this, I thought I would have to say why I was I got interested in markets for technology. Um, I'm I, I'm an economist by training, and um, and um, my my interest. Let me tell you how I got interested in it, and then we can discuss. I went to graduate school uh, in the 80s in, in the Bay Area, and that was responsible in many important ways for why, why I was interested. That was around the time when the biotechs were coming on, and the prevailing wisdom was that this was a flash in the pan, that eventually the, the pharmaceutical companies would learn about this new technology and would, would just acquire the, the competencies in-house. And as an economist, you know, I always sort of wondered, well, why couldn't you make a business licensing? Why couldn't you be in the business of, of inventing new things? Um, and why did you have to actually embed your knowledge into stuff to make money, in, to put it in technical terms? Um, and this is framed against, if, if, you, if, you, you know, if, you, if you go to Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, Book one, the very first sentence, reads th thus. And I'm going to quote, the greatest improvement in the productive powers of labor and the greater part of skill, dexterity, and judgment with which, with which it is anywhere directed or applied seems to have been the effect of division of labor. In other words, specialization. And if you look at capitalism or modern capitalist growth, there's a progressive specialization. People specialize in doing things. We no longer uh, uh, cook, our, you know, grow our own food, or increasingly many of us don't even cook our own food. Um, and this is true most in most, you know, spheres of activity, except it seems, innovation, where, as Marshall pointed out, we've had the reverse trend. Right. So we started with. In invention being a specialized activity, and it became a part of what firms did inside, and nobody else did outside. And now, the sort of, it seems like the cycle is changing. And this is both tremendously exciting from a variety of ways, but from a from a deeply academic perspective, this is a really interesting question to ask: Why is it that something that we think is it has tremendous productivity benefits, has tremendous potential for for increasing uh, our well-being is something that seems to be an exception, or, or until recently, uh, have been an exception. So let, let me stop with that, because I think that's, that's the sort of perspective I come at it, uh, come to this topic, uh, and then we can talk more. I'm Horacio Gutierrez, and uh, I uh, have the privilege of having uh, succeeded Marshall within Microsoft in managing the uh, 
the IP department and uh, in some very significant ways being mentored by him. Um, you know, this is a topic for, for Microsoft and some of the other companies that, uh, that are represented here that's uh, um, extremely important. Uh, I, Marshall likes to say that uh, when you look at you know, the S&P 500 and you deduct all of the uh, uh, capital assets uh, uh, from, uh, from the value of the companies that are represented there, you're still going to find something like 90 or 80 or 90 percent of the value. Uh, it's really the intangibles. It's, and, and a lot of that, if not all of it, is the intellectual property. Well, I think Microsoft is one of several examples that are really the epitome of that, um, of, of that phenomenon. Our, you know, we may have some buildings and we may have some uh, equipment and tools that we give people, but it's really the, the IQ that we attract in the company and then the ability to take that innovation and those ideas and make them into product and, and, and protect them through intellectual property that, that are really essential. And the other phenomenon that's happened is over the last uh, uh, couple of decades, the, the software industry has matured in some significant ways. And you're starting to see uh, in our industry things that you saw in other technology areas before, in consumer electronics and in almost any other area of technology. Uh, the dealings between companies have become, become more sophisticated and more important. Um, oh, collaboration models have become more important as products have become more complex. Uh, over time, standards have become, more, have become more prevalent and IP issues surrounding standards have also become uh, the focus of attention um, in the context of the regulatory uh, uh, process. Uh, all those things are quite uh, central uh, to Microsoft's strategy long term and its ability to remain an IP-based company and a successful company in the marketplace. Uh, so. Uh, I think this, if, if you're going to be in the area of IP, and I, I suppose anybody who's been in this area, you could say that about any, any, any point in time, but this is a particularly interesting and fascinating time where you're seeing that IP considerations have moved out of the back rooms and the, uh, the, the, the patent lawyers and into the boardrooms and into uh, strategic business discussions and their policy and regulatory and legislative implications to, uh, to these things uh, that are in the process of being determined today. And just as um, uh, you know, the, uh, the AT&T case or the IBM case in the 80s and early 90s might have set the tone for what has been lived in the last, uh, 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 in, in the decades after that, I would say the current uh, discussions on legislative policy and regulatory policy surrounding IP and standards are going to dictate the way this market is going to evolve uh, in the future. So uh, this is why I'm here and this is why this topic is very timely and, and very interesting to me. Good. Hi, my name is Doug Shaw and I'm the uh, CEO of Monotype Imaging and uh, we're a leading provider of text imaging solutions. So what that means is it's a niche business. We combine uh, fonts and font technology to uh, generate high quality digital text, on both hard copy output like printers or soft copy output like uh, computer screens. And a key asset that the company has is that we offer the world's largest and we think most prestigious typeface library. Now these are typefaces that we license from third parties or typefaces we own ourselves. So it's a kind of amazing, but there are people in the type business. 
And uh, we offer typefaces like Arial, Time True Roman, Helvetica, Frutiger faces that you'll see all the time. So what we do is we take that core, really artwork, wrap imaging technology around it, and then license it to printer manufacturers, cell phone manufacturers, digital cameras, software application folks, uh, operating system folks, as well as license fonts directly to end users off our website. So my interest in this whole topic is that it's a 100% IP play. So we're, we're licensing type. And somebody owns type. And, and we protect our IP uh, vigorously through various methods, uh, trademarks, patents, copyrights, and trade secrets. So this is near and dear to a core to our business. Good morning. My name is Jeff Clark. I'm a founder and managing partner of the Aurora Funds, a venture capital fund based here in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. We manage about $250 million and focus on seed and early stage investments in IT and life sciences. Um, I spend most of my time in the life science world, so when we start talking about IT issues, uh, I will be uh, treading carefully. Uh, uh, but uh, very pleased to be here. Uh, we're kind of the practical end of the spectrum. Uh, every day we're working to spin out companies from fine universities like Duke. Uh, I guess we've done about a dozen now out of Duke uh, and worked with Bob through the years on that. But uh, clearly, having a clear understanding of IP freedom to operate uh, is mandatory and it's an increasingly complex world and uh, we're spending more and more time and effort uh, to get a clear view of uh, these issues before writing the initial check and uh, despite that it ends up being an ongoing set of issues uh, and as we evolve we oftentimes move from outside counsel to actually bringing that expertise in in-house uh, as we grow and build these companies so these topics are very relevant to us and uh, IP ends up being a core asset for essentially every one of the companies we do. Okay, I'm Bob Tabor. I'm uh, Vice Chancellor of Corporate and Venture Development at the Medical Center here. Um, in that role, I run tech transfer for the whole university, uh, corporate relations and business development for the Medical Center, uh, and head up some of our international programs, particularly in Asia. I have to say, what, what Doug just said is frightening to me. <laughs> <laughs> so when I go to select the font, I, you own it. <laughs> do, do, you get, do you get a, a royalty every time I select the font? It or? depends which font you select. <laughs> <laughs> he can slip you a little. <laughs> Last night he took a look at one of the things I handed out and he didn't like the font at all. So <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. Oh my god. <laughs> That's right. It was worth it for, for that alone, being here. Um, well, I, I guess we, we should say we have a unique perspective, in, in, being a, an academic health center, um, in that we're involved at the front end, you know, starting companies, which are often based on, on IP. Um, and we're also in, in, in the pharma slash biodevelopment cycle at the back end. And so we have a large clinical trial enterprise that does the phase two and phase three with certified things. So we have a close relationship with pharma, we're the largest academic recipient of commercial research dollars, so we, we're really involved in this industry um, and have some interesting, I think, perspectives on it. So, uh, back to you, Marshall. Okay, uh, with the help of these guys, I've got about 14 questions here, um, which we can divide up and be here for well, a month or two. Uh, I was it, it was 11 when you invited yeah, us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it grew last night. Uh, uh, what? Can some of these be take home? Yeah, they can be take home. <laughs> <laughs> we got a, 
side bet open book. The I, don't, I don't much care. Uh, I, I'm going to use them just to start the discussion. I was on a panel earlier this week, and we didn't get through the first question in an hour and a half, uh, which was great because the audience, you know, basically jumped in and started to pummel people. Um, this is a highly interactive audience from what I can see, and I don't see any reason why uh, we shouldn't just allow that to allow that to occur. Uh, to occur. So I'm just going to start off. I, I, in, in, when I started talking today, I made a couple of uh, leaps of faith, and I'd like to test them uh, with the panel. I, I, I talked about the ICT world and this battle cry of open innovation. And the whole idea on that was this recognition that even if you spend a whole lot on R&D, at the end of the day, you still need a lot of cooperation from people that you, in the, in, in the, uh, in the near past, would have been irrelevant or disdained, or both, uh, to, to that process. And I was just talking to John Warish about the fact that we still don't have the internal processes uh, to, to make that work as well as it should. But, but my question, I'm going to ask uh, Jeff, because he's on the front end of this, and Horacio, who's on the back end of this, is this a trend, this collaborative R&D that we're likely to see continue? Uh, is it going to be uh, a trend that moves outside of what, what, what uh, uh, some would call the ICT industry, the, uh, uh, the IT with the communications industry, if you will? And is it going to continue irrespective of the size of the companies, uh, or does that make a difference? So I'll start with uh, uh, Jeff on that, and then we'll go to Horacio. Right, well, I think the quick answer is that yes, I think it is a trend that uh, actually we're just seeing start. And I think, uh, almost by definition, it's going to expand, and I think fairly dramatically. My frame of reference would largely be uh, uh, kind of uh, biotech and device companies. But historically, uh, there has been, uh, from Big Pharma, a huge not invented here syndrome. Uh, they were big, powerful companies that went out and hired the world's best people, and they had the ability to uh, develop their own pipeline of drugs, and uh, they would do so, and uh, you know, uh, did so fairly effectively. For years now, we've been talking about uh, the, the uh, pipelines of these big companies, and the fact that uh, they're going to have a hard time sustaining uh, their revenue numbers and their, uh, their margins. Uh, I can tell you three to five years ago, what was happening is that uh, it was discussed, but there was still that wonderful uh, focus on quarterly earnings. So while it was discussed, there wasn't a lot of activity. What has happened in the last couple of years is a, a real understanding that a lot of the drugs are coming off patent, and you must start addressing the pipeline issues now. And I think uh, the net effect is, is we're seeing behavior change uh, within big pharma. Uh, first and foremost, they've become far more acquisitive. So the number of M&A transactions is going up, and it's happening earlier in the process. Historically, that would happen in phase three clinical trials. Now it's happening in phase two, where you have a proof of principle uh, in the safety data. But you're also starting to see that happen in phase one clinical trials and even in preclinical trials. Um, and what you're also starting to see in big pharma is uh, some thinking out of the box, probably not historically a strength. Uh, they uh, are becoming somewhat proactive. But I think, Marshall, we're just beginning to see, uh, to see that happen. Uh, 
for instance, GSK now has a, uh, a proactive group that is out licensing some of their technologies, trying to help uh, spin it into companies. Um, JJDC, Johnson Johnson Development Corp, is a group that for a long time has been uh, uh, investing in early stage life science companies where there's a direct link to uh, something within J&J, &J, uh, nominally with an eye of, uh, uh, of acquiring it as it grows up. That said, there's a lot of room for improvement. I, you really don't see any of the big pharma companies being what I would say is really proactive where they're really out in front uh, engaging with a lot of the early stage companies uh, to fill those pipelines. And I think uh, that's one of the things we'll see over the next uh, three to five years is that this process will continue and that uh, Big Pharma will become even more engaged with the early stage uh, uh, community, the early stage companies, uh, because fundamentally they need them for uh, continued development of their pipelines. Before I let you go, in the, as a VC, seems to me you, you probably have a role trying to facilitate that between uh, large and small and small and small and whatever because you tend to see more business cases uh, than, than, than the, the average fair. Absolutely. And I think uh, historically there haven't been as many conversations between VCs and uh, leadership at Big Pharma and that is changing. Uh, several of the Big Pharma companies have what they're lovingly calling VC days where they'll actually bring in a group of VCs, and the whole idea is to exchange ideas, next generation technologies, uh, and again, for a big farmer to start uh, getting an eye on some of those technologies. So uh, uh, we're starting to see it, and I think we'll see even more of that. Okay. Rossi? Uh, well, the short answer to the question is yes. The, the more interesting part is why is it so? Why is collaborative innovation something we talk about? And anything to which you attach the words open and collaborative is good, is fashionable, feels good, and you know it could just be a marketing thing. Uh, but there's more to it than just marketing. And the reason why collaborative innovation is a phenomenon today and why I believe it's going to continue to be more so in the future is because of a combination of factors. The markets are very different. Markets are global markets today. 50, 60 years ago, you could have a very successful company in a region within the United States and face limited competition from others. Or you could say the whole United States. And yet, you would go to South America, you'd go, you'd go to Asia. The market wasn't a globalized market the way it is today. Um, 50 years ago, the distribution of products uh, was a very, you know, especially, you know, physical products is still quite a quite an undertaking from, from a logistical perspective. When you move to the ICT sector, with the emergence of broadband, with the emergence of the just electronic downloads, you're talking about instantaneous global distribution. You know, it gets to the point where sometimes in the streets of Beijing, you're going to find copies of movies that haven't been released in theaters in the U.S. They may not be legitimate, but they're available. The quality may not be high, but they're there. So you know, distribution is instantaneous, and that's the world in which we live and we, we compete right now. In the area in which we operate, you know, this may be subject to some level of argument, but for the most part, there are low barriers of entry. You know, it's not like you know, having a power plant or building a, a, a power distribution grid that requires a tremendous amount of upfront uh, up uh, investment in order to get up to speed. Some of these things, um, 
you know, can be done by smart people uh, in a relatively short period of time. Therefore, what's happened is the pace of innovation and the source of innovation has diversified and has expanded. And uh, people are not only competing in specific markets, but the other phenomenon is people are competing by leap, leapfrogging each other by inventing technologies that were not viewed as a threat before, and yet they can, in a matter of years, displace technologies that were um, the standard uh, uh, before. So in that scenario, how does one keep up? How does one compete? How, how do you prevent, if you're, if you're a, a large corporation, how do you make sure that you're not so focused on the, on the product of today that you're not putting your eye on the markets and the dynamics of the future? And the, way, the only way that you can do that and the only way that you can react quickly enough to uh, uh, shifts in customer demand and preferences and, and overall market shifts is by having a nimble, uh, uh, agile way of keeping your eye on, on developments, having relationships where you can be exposed to them and have an opportunity to embrace them and adopt them. And that's not going to happen until you're willing to reciprocate and be able to not only you know, absorb uh, innovations that come from outside, but also shares share yours, and that 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 dictates a number of strategic partnerships and relationships in the innovation area that will require a set of complicated licensing arrangements. Um, I, I think, as you said in the speech this morning, uh, people sometimes look at IP as the means by which you exclude other people from your right and your innovation. The fact is, it's in fact the currency by which people can trade with each other and be able to exchange uh, uh, those rights and innovations. In the absence of that protection, people would be very reluctant to share uh, their IP. So those are just a few, perhaps superficial uh, uh, observations on what has caused collaborative innovation not only to be something that feels good, but something that's actually essential to remain competitive for a company and we know in our market, we need to reinvent ourselves uh, every year if we want to remain relevant in each of our areas. So, Bob, this morning, I made kind of an argument that one of the things that's driving all of this is also is the enormous cost of R&D. Uh, let's just take the area you're most familiar with, which would be big pharma and the drug industry and things like that. And uh, whether, whether my proposition that that is also fueling uh, some of this necessity of, of, of looking uh, other places for your, for your R&D help. You know, you know, I think there's a, there's a fundamental bifurcation of IP between the biomedical world and, your, and the IT world. Um, the issue with the biomedical world is length of development, mm -hmm. development cycle. Um, if, if you look at the idea here, um, when you file the patent, back to, to when it gets into people, uh, that's you're talking five to six years. And then you're going into a regulatory cycle, which is another five to six years, and then the patent life is 20 years, uh, then you have a problem. Uh, average investment in a drug to get it through phase three is, is between 250 and 500 million dollars. And, and no one is going to make that investment without sound intellectual property protection. Um, and then when the development's going on, everybody knows what's going on. It's not a secret. It's out there. So you, you really need uh, Good protection, and I think this this need is, is increased with time as these development costs have grown. 
Um, so you're faced with that problem. Uh, the corollary problem is the success rate is going down. Uh, the number of, of new drugs developed in return or against the uh, dollars spent is, is declined precipitously. Uh, so, so it's a huge problem. So intellectual property is really important for this big expenditure. Now, it's also changed the fundamental dynamics of the industry in that, I mean, you're getting a fragmentation now. And if I may take a couple minutes, a history lesson, and I, I thought about this last night. When I finished my postdoc in, in, in 1971, uh, there was no biotech, okay? There, there was no patent in, in universities. Uh, there was big pharma, and it lived in its own world, and it developed these little molecules put together by clever chemists who were actually very successful when you look back compared to the success we're getting now. For a lot less money, people were developing drugs that worked. Now, flip ahead to today, and you have this beginning of, of the cycle, the idea part, which big pharma has largely exited and left it to universities and universities in partnership with biotech and biotech. That, that's where the development, that's where the real intellectual property that drives the process is developed. And maybe something is added later in formulation and whatever in development to extend the patent life, but this is, this is a fundamental change. So that's part A. Part B is the, the large cost of development forces partnership. That it's really hard now to raise the money to take a drug from inception through phase two or three. So at that point, you have to partner with Big Pharma. So Big Pharma is basically coming a late-stage development and marketing operation. And, and it's a fundamental change, and it changes the way we think about things, and it changes the role of IP and all this. Doug, how about, sure. Do you see changes in how companies, biotech companies, see their strategies? So are there lots of companies that are starting up with saying, okay, we'll just license? Or is it the case that they want to become pharmaceutical companies, mini pharmaceutical companies? I mean, if what Bob said is true, then it should be the former, not the latter. My hunch is it's still the latter. Well, I think when we start a company and develop it, uh, you have to have a, a view that you can, in fact, take this company all the way through an NDA and, and market a drug. Um, and we will use public financing to do a big piece of that. So uh, the public windows are currently closed. But uh, in general, for a, uh, a drug addressing a uh, kind of a big, unmet or poorly met medical need with a novel mode of action, uh, with fairly strong phase two clinical results, you can take that company public. So the idea is you would raise venture capital for that phase, and then you would um, uh, raise public funds so you could continue the development in-house. Uh, that's the basic game plan. But that said, I think fully 75, 80% of the, of the time we'll end up partnering that deal before we get to, to the end of the game. And uh, so we'll go ahead and, and have a licensing uh, arrangement, and most of the time, as a part of that, you'll, uh, there actually will be an M&A transaction. So I think... Uh, that probably hasn't changed much. I mean, I think that has pretty much been the gig for a while, that uh, we're building things uh, with an eye towards the long haul, but uh, at some stage of the game, the asset becomes very valuable to big pharma, and uh, hopefully you get two or three people interested simultaneously, and uh, the numbers work out quite well. It's in our best economic interest to go ahead and do a deal today, as opposed to continued development. But again, from a positioning standpoint, you've got to have the ability to continue to develop it to get uh, uh, top returns now. 
But I think the real point is we're talking about developing and not selling it. You know, you, right. You know, when, I remember we started a biotech company in 1981. <laughs> you know, it was a bunch of companies started in that time frame, and we all believed we were going to be big pharma. We were going to have sales market. We were going through the whole nine yards. And out of the maybe 100 companies that started in that time frame, there's Amgen, there's, there's Genentech, Biogen. Biogen, you know, that's it, out of hundreds of companies. So very few actually achieved that goal. And I think now people start it, they have, they're going to fit somewhere in the cycle. If this is the idea and this is sales, they're going to start in here somewhere and exit somewhere in here. That'll be the norm. We got a note from Irving that somebody's BlackBerry is arguably interfering with the microphone. So if you have a BlackBerry and you're sitting up here and you haven't been sued by Just Rim put it yet, away from the microphone. It's turn off. it off. It's off. So if we, we turn the wireless off, it's okay, right? capital market steer investment and you know the magic of capitalism is that these market prices steer investment to the the best areas and that's what drives our engine of, of progress and wealth creation now listening to this discussion about you know biotechs you know perforce having to make a deal with big pharma you know the prices struck in those deals send powerful signals to the rest of the biotech industry about where to invest so it could be that you know last Year's flavor of the month was humanized antibodies, and that's where the money is, and everybody rushes into humanized antibodies. Good deals found in some other sector, which you know, as expressed in you know, high royalty rates or, or, or large sums of money changing hands, steer resources in those directions. When we think about the, the progress of, of biomedical science, we should recognize that now this market is steering resources into <coughs> these areas, and those prices better be sending the right signals. And once you get into this game of you know, bilateral negotiations and you hope you're the little guy with something really hot and there's uh, two or three people lined up who want to get hold of it, right, versus you know, the, the implacable wall of Pfizer, right, who's the only place to go and they're not interested, you know, the deal you strike here isn't really if, isn't in any way resembling the, 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 the ebb and flow of, of pricing of assets in, for example, financial markets. So, you know, as we think about the way this industry is structured, you know, I mean, I've, I've written a number of times, or at least raised the hypothesis that, you know, perhaps one of the things which is causing the, you know, the, the, the drying up of, of, of the pipeline and the lack of progress in producing new products is precisely this vertical disintegration of the industry to the extent it's in interjected wrong prices or bad pricing and, and a dysfunctional market for technology, that could be the problem rather than the solution. Well, I go to what Marshall said earlier, that it's, you know, this deal making is an art, not a science. And, you know, all kinds of strange things happen in these deals. And I'll tell you one deal, we have a company now that's on the market, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a, a drug for, for a disease of the front of the eye. Okay, and we're probably going to do a very good deal with a company that's strong in diseases for the back of the eye. Okay, so they're building a sales force in ophthalmology 
And so this, co this company is probably worth twice or three to X to them what it would have been otherwise because of that synergy. I mean, that, and that's kind of serendipity, but it'll be a good deal, and it'll be because of this serendipitous event. So just to get off biotech for 30 seconds here, we'll come back to it, I'm sure. But Doug, uh, what about non-patent IP situations in your, in your world, and, and how, does, how does your world fit into this discussion? Um, so patents, of course, have a certain life, you know, 16, 20 years, and then you, you do appendages to it. And the way we protect our asset, the number one way, is trademarks. So if you can have a, a valuable brand, trademark that brand, the beauty of trademarks is they last forever. So the typeface Helvetica, we own that trademark. And so when we license Helvetica to our customers, we've got a nice position where we actually own that trademark, we put patented scaling technology around it, and then negotiate as far as what the value is to the customer. So trademarks are our number one way to protect our IP. From a patent standpoint, it's tough to do design patents in the type industry. Type is a piece of artwork. And, and in Europe, they're a little bit more um, lenient as far as patenting designs, particularly in Germany, but in the US, it's really tough to, to get a patent on a typeface. But we do uh, get patents on our compression and uh, imaging technologies. Uh, copyrights, very important. So the way, we, the way our algorithms describe the actual artwork. And after trademarks, I'd say our number two way to protect our IP is trade secrets. So, so, so that is under non-disclosure. We've built a knowledge base over time as far as market requirements, internal processes, products, and so on. And so really, trademarks and know-how is a way that we protect our IP. And just one other quick comment on, on collaboration. I, I know we talked about you know, the, the biotech industry, but, but there's a lot of, we're a $100 million software company. So that's a, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small software company, and we have 250 people that work for us. But what we've done is we've tried to figure out what we're good at. And we think what we're good at is the technology side and distribution. And so what we've done is communicate to the rest of the graphic arts community Hey, you guys design typefaces. You come up with beautiful looking typefaces, and we'll leverage our distribution channels and our IP portfolio. And by doing that, believe it or not, we have 120,000 different typefaces now on our website. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's any graphic designers here, just send them down. But, but, it, but it really is knowing what you're good at and how you partner with other people. So. I'm a fan of Times New Roman. You guys know that? We work with Microsoft in Times New Roman. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like a hell of a business to me. <laughs> <laughs> God. If I can say one about trademark, you know, and the interesting, your trademarks are really important. And, you know, Duke is, a, we trademarked Duke, okay? And uh, we've just done a deal to build a medical school in Singapore, which in fact what we're building, that had a certain value. And believe me, we got over there and trademarked Duke really fast, you know, so it's a and the curious thing, we're, we're looking at another large deal in India, and we're trying to trademark Duke, and it's a big problem. Because it goes back to the British Empire. <laughs> there were other uses of the word Duke. <laughs> but, but it's really important to last forever. The world hasn't has recovered value. from yep. the British Empire. That's right. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So the another proposition we talked about 
was the uh, whether this independent inventor thing uh, is going to resurface and can it be a force in the R&D process of even large well-funded companies and I'd really like to get the view of uh, Asish and Jeff on that and, and if so how so I kind of mentioned to Jeff that I thought that the venture capital world actually has a role to play as a facilitator in, in, in all of that. And if I were an independent inventor, and we heard a couple of voices on behalf of an independent inventor at the small companies and things like that this morning, uh, just how do they do this? When we get done with that, I want to go back to the management systems of the large companies that either make this work or make it not work. So let's start with that. Ashish, we'll start with you. Oh, um, I guess, so I mean, again, going, going back to the history lesson, we had independent inventors. They went away in the 20s with the rise of corporate, large corporate R&D. We don't understand well why they went away. It's, it's alleged um, that it had to do with uh, the increasing, increasing cost of, uh, of research and perhaps the increasing requirements to be a successful inventor. You had to you had to have lots of science and technology. It wasn't just tinkering around with mechanical inventions. Um, and that seems sort of reasonable, but that would then, uh, you know, bring into question why we, we should see independent inventors now. And perhaps we're only going to see them in areas where uh, those requirements are relaxed. So, for example, software type stuff where it's possible for a creative person to come up with a nice idea and implemented relatively cheaply. And if you take that one step further, the fact that you can do a lot of the prototyping type stuff in software rather than in silico or that kind of things may be that actually, in fact, the cost of the technology of, of innovation is changing. Uh, it's reducing cost for, for at least certain types of, uh, of experimentation. Uh, and if, you, and if, if that's correct, then at least in those sorts of areas, and, the, and by that, those sorts may well include a very wide part of the economy, not just software, but insofar as IT is getting employed in, in doing all kinds of research in biology as well, we may see, we may see independent inventions. So, so, so that's one thing. But I want to make also a second, uh, second part, which is sort of more academic, which is one way to think about this is when you get, in, when you get innovation, you create value. And this, but to create this value, you need you know, material inputs like labor and capital and the new knowledge. And one way to think about what's happening over the last you know, two, two centuries is, is the changing nature of those markets for, for, invent, for, for those inputs. So over time, as Ian mentioned, we now have fairly efficient capital markets. We've had fairly efficient labor markets as well, give or take. And, the, and if, you, if you take this view, then the, the implication is that the returns to those factors get driven down to the competitive rates of return. In the old days, if you had a pot of money, you could make a lot of money because there were very few people with that kind of capital. So you would get an extra return just because you had a kind of a control over a scarce resource. I'm convinced that over the last 30, 30 years or so in the US economy, that's gone away. The return to capital is, is getting down to, to more competitive levels of return. And that should logically imply that the, the person holding the scarce asset, the knowledge asset, should get the extra return. If you believe that, then there's sort of this theoretical argument for why you should see more, more independent investment. 
Right, so uh, in your speech earlier, you talked about, I think it was the 20s and 30s, the uh, small independent inventors and uh, their impact. I think those folks are still around, except today we call them entrepreneurs. Um, and as far as I know, there really aren't paths for an entrepreneur to approach Microsoft uh, or to approach GSK. You just, there's not a way to put those two groups together. I, I mean, uh, it's impractical for the big company to know how to embrace hundreds or thousands of people. And uh, as Marshall said earlier, if you try to call Microsoft, you might not be able to get through the maze. Um, but almost by definition, the entrepreneurs are the ones that figure out a path forward. And instead of talking about an idea, they go try to make the idea a reality. And so they find a way. Um, and and they, uh, they develop a product. And they find a way to do that. And you know, hopefully they're thinking about kind of where Microsoft is heading, uh, where IBM is heading, and uh, they're out ahead of it. And so that they're building something that the big guys will want eventually. Um, so I mean, an interesting question is, and uh, in, in, in kind of the venture capital community, we're in the business of empowering those entrepreneurs and allowing them to move further down the road with their uh, product or innovation. And uh, if you're right, if it's something that really is important to the, uh, the future of uh, Microsoft, IBM, Google, Yahoo, uh, then my guess is that uh, you, uh, you can get a deal done. Uh, flip side to that is, again, I think what entrepreneurs often do is you have to go build companies that aren't dependent upon doing a deal with one of the big guys. That there is a business unto itself. And I, like Bob, didn't know you could have a $100 million business in typefaces, but uh, kind of case in point. Here's a, a very important business built on IP uh, that last time I checked, uh, they're partners with Microsoft. Uh, you're partners with IBM. You're not a part of them. Right. And um, so I think part of this is, I mean, I thought you're, the thought that you put forward earlier, Marshall, about uh, maybe having an open bulletin board. Here are the five problems that we're trying to solve and open it up to all comers. Might be a way to engage kind of a much broader group um, but I think for uh, what we are seeing is actually proactive activity on behalf of the big companies to engage kind of one level up or these small companies, kind of 30 to 100 employees that are working on solutions already. In a lot of ways, they are charged with, here are the three or four problems we're trying to solve, who's best of breed, and we're seeing the, you know, our companies getting inbound calls to think about uh, doing early uh, partnering deals or potentially M&As. And, and I would say that level of activity has picked up uh, in the recent, uh, say, a couple of years. So, so what I hear here is that, what I believe, is that corporate management systems uh, need to evolve and change to be at least open, if not receptive, to this kind of stuff. Heretofore, the uh, concern over getting ultimately sued for your, you know, no good deed goes unpunished kind of a situation here. Uh, at Microsoft, we have a wonderful tradition um, uh, dealing with something called a feedback clause. This is a, a clause that was written by Bill Gates, and so it's a vampire. We can't kill it. And uh, 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 we have tried, believe me, I tried for three and a half years to kill it, and it keeps resurfacing in all these agreements, which basically says, if you do business with us, we own it. Uh, and, 
And there's concern. I mean, the reason for it is, is that you, you put stuff out in beta tests and everybody comments on it. And if you don't have some clause like that, arguably you leave yourself really exposed. And when you've got 50 million lines of code, which by the way is about the amount that's in Vista, uh, who the hell knows what's in there? And you, you, know, you, you, you really want to protect the company down the road from the, you know, the, the guy who sat with a coding pad on the kitchen table and, 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 and shipped something to you and it ends up in a product. Not to mention the open source phenomena where anything, guys out over the internet are pulling code down left and right and things like that. So my question for Horacio and anybody else who cares to comment out there in, in, uh, in the audience is how will corporate management systems and procedures need to change to accommodate these independent inventors and people like that who really do want to intersect in the process? So Horacio, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I think, you know, we've, We've tried a couple of things, and I, you know, I think this is just the beginning of the process, and I wouldn't say that we've figured it out. I'd be lying to you if I said we have. Um, a, a couple of things. I, I think they will have to change, and, and it, they, they have to change because the reality is you're not going to be able to partner with, with, with uh, 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 the sources of many of the innovations that are going to be key to your success unless you're able to adjust. And I think that the, there, if you're a company uh, that understands that you need to be constantly reinventing yourself to remain relevant, then you, you, you know, we have and will continue to take steps uh, to be able to make those adjustments. Um, we have a program that, that you refer to that's, that's been a good, uh, perhaps, early experience along the lines of what you, what you described. It's called IP Ventures. And, and IP Ventures is a mechanism um, by which we do a, a, a couple things. It's, it's very focused on taking Microsoft's own innovations out of its research labs. And these are innovations that, for one reason or, or the other, are not going to make it into a Microsoft product, just because they're not intersecting with the product, uh, product roadmap. Uh, and that otherwise would have just sat in, in, the, in the shelves of uh, the Microsoft research centers and not be used at all. And we, we have a team of people who takes that, works with the research team to bring that technology to a point where it can be uh, productized to a level and then works with development agencies or individual entrepreneurs in actually building a business model around it and having a management team. And then that in and of itself establishes relationships with these companies that end up enriching and adding uh, uh, the, the innovation and things that we can learn from. Im importantly, to make it work, we have no feedback clause in those agreements. We have no grant backs. If you're going to make it work, you need to be able to let it go and appreciate that perhaps you're going to own a small percentage of the equity, but other than that, you have no control over what happens there, and you really grant freedom to them and the ability to go and become attractive sometimes to your competitors who can end up buying them. And sometimes It's a mandatory piece to getting a deal done. Exactly. So. Um, I, you know, it's, I, I think we've been quite successful over the last three years. We've done a number of deals in that area. It's, it's taught us uh, one avenue of doing those kinds of engagements, and you know, we have to continue uh, to expand it. I, I'll say something, though. As I was listening to the discussion about independent inventor, I wonder if we're all talking about the same thing. I mean, there's an issue of what, what is the definition of an independent inventor? If you meant this sort of, uh, you know, uh, peer 
you know, who lives off rents in his uh, lands in some English uh, countryside and who's has got this proverbial um, uh, uh, workshop and is inventing things and then, you know, maybe that does no, no longer exist. But I can't help but think that if I look at the software industry and the technology industry over the last 10 years, you know, we've seen so many companies come from nowhere, from kids who were students. I mean, Gates and Paul Allen, you know, and then, you know, the Google folks and the Yahoo folks and all those things. The, are, is the definition that as long as they incorporate, they're no longer a, an independent inventor? In, invent, inventor? Because if that's the case, Edison was not an independent inventor, and, and Graham Bell was not an independent inventor. I actually, I actually would contest the notion that there's no evidence of, of independent invention today, especially in our sector, but I think that applies pretty much across the board. Well, our sector, all you need is a coding pad and a kitchen table. There is no barrier to entry in that sense. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the environment, uh, the uh, the uh, the internet explosion, uh, that was the case. What I was trying to get at is, and then we'll go to the audience here because it's time. Uh, is I don't believe that most corporations have a management system in place uh, to be receptive to this kind of stuff. I just don't believe it. Uh, whether it's the switchboard, or whether it's the fact that in most co most companies. Intellectual property is viewed as a negative right as opposed to a positive uh, uh, facilitator of, of, of data transfer. And by the way, what I mean the negative right is I got a bunch of patents and I can sue you if I think you're trampling on whatever is my, uh, my, 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 my product set going forward and that's all I think about it. And that's why I give it to the legal department and I say, legal department, you protect me. You don't say to the legal department in general, go build me a business around this. Go build me... Uh, find me relationships using intellectual property. That's not what CEOs say in, 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 in most cases. So when Lou Gerstner arrives to rescue IBM in 1992, he sends me a memo and says, what the hell do you think you're doing? That's exactly what the memo said. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that creates a bit of a challenge to you. Uh, and you have to work your way, way out of that. But that's because he grew up. What was your reply? Uh, I'll, I'll, well. I don't <laughs> We had to demonstrate to Lou that the, the, the reason that we did licensing and things like that was because in our industry, we all needed the intellectual property of others to survive. And so we pried the top off an IBM laptop. And you've got to remember, this is IBM's architecture. And IBM's architecture, therefore, you'd think had the strongest patent position. And we took a bunch of toothpicks and we made little flags out of, uh, out of red construction paper, just like out of first grade. And we glued those flags into, you know, everywhere in that laptop where there was intellectual property of somebody other than IBM. And we ran out of real estate at about 150 of those things. And we went in and we dumped it on his desk and they, this is why we do what we do. And he got it immediately. But he had come from Nabisco. And Nabisco had just lost a patent fight with Procter & Gamble. There's a book written about this. It's called The Cookie Wars. He lost a patent fight over a machine that made soft chocolate chip cookies, if you can believe it. And uh, that technology is no longer in use today. But the, anyway, that was the lawsuit. So his view was always this negative right side of the equation, which I would argue is 99% of the CEOs today still look at it that way. So I'll just stop there. And Wes, you had a question or somebody? Right over there. Okay. Hi, Marshall. Uh, Jeff Brecker from Brand Council. Yeah. I've heard lately people talk about 
this idea of biodiversity and that where the ocean meets the water, where the water meets the land, there's all sorts of biodiversity. And I think we see in places like RTV, a lot of this biodiversity from research universities, venture capital firms, and corporations. And I guess this is probably a very simple thing to say, but to Ashish and also to Jeff, do you see venture capital firms as, in a way, sort of the aggregators of the emissions of labor to sort of bringing as the agent uh, to those of us who are entrepreneurs in ways that getting through the door in ways that uh, otherwise Microsoft would be less. We'd like to think that we help. Uh, on a good day, perhaps we even do help. But that said, venture capital can help 5% of great entrepreneurs out there. And it's just kind of a sheer numbers gig. And so uh, I think especially in this community, I, one of the things that I'm very proud of, it's one of the uh, communities probably that may be unique in the country where there aren't really a lot of sharp elbows. And everybody works to empower entrepreneurs to be successful. I, it turns out I see Rashid Khan here, who uh, has a great company, Ultimus. Uh, Rashid uh, built a great company for many, many years without venture capital. And I think after many years did take some venture capital, but a great example of, uh, I think, Several people helped brush it along the way, uh, did a great job of building that, but goes out without VC backing. So uh, it's part of building an infrastructure, a, an, an ecosystem uh, that uh, actually Marshall touched on earlier, where you empower all the entrepreneurs. And so there'll be a small percentage that get VC, but the vast majority will not. But you need to empower that whole group uh, to have a shot at being successful. And the idea is you're casting the bread on the, on the water, and. Uh, uh, trying to help uh, these people be successful, and eventually some of that will come back. But this is a community where everybody opens their doors. Uh, they'll spend time uh, kind of independent of whether or not there's any direct benefit for them today. And so, I think that's part of it. So when I lived in Silicon Valley, you'd go to a cocktail party with a non-disclosure agreement in your back pocket. I mean, it's just totally opposite of that. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't happen here. Yeah. Tanya? Why don't you introduce yourself? Let's switch microphones because that, that isn't working. We'll try this. Uh, who are type designers, uh, because there is really a huge ecosystem in, in the type design community with a lot of independent individuals around the world, uh, not just the United States, who develop typefaces for a living. And uh, Doug kind of referenced quickly how Monotype works with them, and if you could elaborate, that'd be great. Sure. And, and it's not a model that's unique to our company. There's, there's a company called Shutterstock that's in the um, a, a royalty-free stock photo business, and they do the same sort of thing. So, so what they do is encourage the industry of now photographers to post their 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 photographies, digital photographies, on website on, on Shutterstock's website. And there's a whole quality control process to make sure it's a good-looking photo, and they catalog it in an easy way for customers to to, to search. And, and what's happening is they're developing a huge IP library and leveraging their distribution. So on the font side, we're doing the exact same thing. We hold several uh, type symposiums where we encourage worldwide uh, Asian type designers, that could be uh, Arabic type designers, uh, US, Europe, to submit their, their artwork 
And then we have a type director's review bureau that picks what we think is, is the best designs. And those agreements are royalty-based agreements. And, and it really is, if we succeed, then you succeed. And, there's, and most of these people are one or two shop people who just have a love for the art form. And we'll give them an opportunity, as well as other people in this business, to now you know, get a return on, on, that, on that artwork. And it really is a, uh, it's an acknowledgement that we only can do so much ourselves in then offering these services to the rest of the industry. Let me ask a question. Um, in principle, you should make the most money with, if you are fulfilling the scarcest resource in the marketplace or the most complicated. And once upon a time, those were inventions. But I think we're living in a world where we have so much technology we have so many inventions that, frankly, that's no longer a scarce resource with few exceptions. I mean, we are not talking about uh, you know, people who are hitting 350. We're not, you know, there are a few of those, and there will always be a few. But you know, the vast majority are not quite in that league. And today, the really, really, really tough problem is getting those successful inventions to market and often inventing the market. So it's not surprising that an entrepreneurial business that has demonstrated the existence of a market <coughs> is far more valuable than somebody with an invention in general caveat, you know, A-Rod or people like that, that who the hell knows whether there is a market or not. And, uh, and yet we keep having a discussion with this romantic view of the inventor, with this incredible thing. And, you know, it, it, it's not that it's a dime a dozen, but we are being a little... We're not focusing on, my God, getting things to market, making it successful, supporting the customers. Advertising, marketing, selling is really tough. And I'm, what I'd like to know is, how should the system change, including governance in companies, and even the whole way to look at IP, if I am right that there is this big shift that has taken place? What? So, so I completely agree with you on everything except that, that there has been a shift. Why do you think this was easier 100 years ago? Why do you think it was easier to make a market when you had very limited means of communication? You knew a lot less about things. So I, 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 I think I would agree that this, the, all the other stuff that you said is absolutely right. Figuring out what this is going to be used for, figuring out how you need to take a nascent technology and modifying this to make it serve some useful need, uh, that, that's really important. And, and I agree, that may, may be the scarcest resource and, and that may be the reason why we'll never get a, a fully sort of anonymous market for technology where you can go and say, I want that, two of those. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I, I buy the idea that it's become harder. 
some reason more valuable, it may well be that there are more inventors around. So there may be an increase in the relative supply. And to that extent, I would agree. Anybody else? I mean, it's, it's, I would add to that, you know, the, what you're talking about is some kind of infrastructure stuff, which I agree with. But if you look at the internet, I mean, there's just an explosion of available information out there, a lot of it irrelevant, I would grant you that. But it seems to me that uh, that as a tool would make some of these things about the availability of technology and all of that even more obvious. I mean, I don't know, maybe we're, wherever Jim Malachowski is, maybe he has a view of whether, there he is back there, whether, whether or not the, the uh, support of the internet and things like that make, make it easier for the for the awareness transfer, I don't, I don't know. Where's Lou Zaretsky? There's another hand up there. Oh, there's another hand there. Okay. Well, hey, hang on a second. We're going to get you the mic there. Uh, my name is Rashid Khan from Altimus. You introduced me. Thank you for your introduction. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think we're talking about uh, collaborative innovation. I think the first ingredient of collaboration is trust. Yeah. So I think the question, you know, for large companies is, does the individual investor and I define that as any small company, like an entrepreneur like myself. Do we really trust the large companies? And I think the question from your side, from the large company side is, how do you build the trust? Yeah. That's my comment. I actually was trying to talk about that a little bit this morning when I said, you know, that was the difference between John Q. Citizen in Boise, Idaho, versus a known company that I've done business with before. The, the trust issue goes both ways, and it's very difficult. In, in, in the small company or the small inventor, I mean, it's your very existence that's at stake. Uh, for a Microsoft, it isn't its very existence, or an IBM or a General Motors. It's not their very existence. It might be a pain in the ass, but it's not your, it's not your existence that's at stake. Uh, so I, I think that's really crucial. I'm trying to figure out here, as, as I listen to all of this, how do companies create that receptivity? How do they create the, man, uh, the management systems that allow for that trust to develop? And quite frankly, I don't know the answer to that, but I, but I do think it's, it's the right question to ask. Wes, you had something you wanted to talk about? Let's see if we can get you the microphone. It, it's on the way. We're down to one functioning Microsoft, or one functioning Microsoft uh, phone here, so this poor guy is going to lose a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I, I'm picking up a, a sort of a two stories here, right? In your opening keynote, you talk about an incentive, you talk about Procter & Gamble and so on. You, you talk about uh, innovation in, in, in uh, the domain of reaching out, accessing. Then I hear, oh, but, you know, 99% of large firms aren't even set up to do this. This is not, you know. So I guess it's almost an empiric, and then you have, you know, Hank Chesbro's well-known book, Open Innovation, if you read that, you think, oh, this is going on, this is spreading, this is a wave. And then you have Ashish's earlier problem that he posed, which was, you know, it's not a coincidence that the R&D function was internalized early in the century, 
okay because R&D often has to be integrated with other activities, with manufacturing, with uh, marketing, sales service, and so on. A lot of mutual adjustment. There has to be strong ties and communication links for this stuff to happen. So I, I guess I, I come away with a question which uh, I, I don't know the answer to, just as an empirical matter. Is there, are the innocentives and, and the, uh, uh, you know, the Procter & Gamble's, are these outliers? Are these, the, the, is uh, Chesbro right? Is this indeed a trend? Or do we have a few nice stories out here that are poster boys for, for, for this sort of interaction? But it really, it's not an iceberg. These guys are just birds up there having nothing to do with what, what lays be below the uh, surface of the water. So my question is, is this, is this really a trend from the viewpoint of, uh, of both the entrepreneurial sector? In biotech, I would imagine, yes. But, but where I'd be more, where I'm surely more uncertain about the answer to that is, uh, you know, ICT. So trend, not a trend. What are the movements or these outliers? So for anybody on so Who wants to start? I'll right. start. I, I'd say, and I'll start with... Uh, I don't know if it's provocative, but I, 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 I go back to, I think there's some definitional problems here. Um, Irving, how many acquisitions has IBM made in the last three years? 100 to 150 acquisitions. When you talk about collaborative innovation, you, you can look at it from a static um, organizational perspective. Did, innovation occur within the walls of the enterprise or did it occur outside and then you talk uh, talk about if it happened outside how was it brought inside right and then you can you can have this romanticized notions about um, the way in which innovation happened outside it really doesn't matter it happens in many different ways it happens in many different places we just bought a Norwegian company, and you know, they're, you know, we bought companies out of Israel. We bought, bought companies out of all, all over the world, and you, you, in, in having this discussion, you cannot ignore the fact that the prevalent and most, perhaps most effective way for importing independent invention into the corporate setting is through acquisition. And I think that's very relevant in biotech and is very relevant in ICT. So you cannot factor that out in having this discussion. There, that's not the only way. And I think what we're saying is you're going to see methods and relationships and transactions occur outside the, the, uh, uh, just the mere acquisition of corporate entities and, and technologies. But in fact, what is happening is that people have realized that you have to acquire this innovation that's been developed outside. And you acquire it because you acquire the technology, you acquire a license to it, you acquire a, you know, a patent license or uh, the code itself in the case of software because you bring the team inside the company, uh, you acquire the corporate entity, or you enter into other kinds of transactions in there. There's a whole many of ways, but these are just tools by which you bring this externally developed innovation into the company, and different tools work in different settings. It depends on the kind of innovation, how central the innovation is to your product and your success. If it is core to your competitiveness long term, you're going to want to buy it. 
and you're gonna you're gonna want you're gonna want to bring those people with the know-how inside of the organization. That is the best way, and you're gonna settle for something less when you have no choice. And then moving from there, there's a whole spectrum of transactions that might might work for different for different scenarios. Anybody else? Can I just ask a question? So uh, this is. So why, why do you want to buy this? Like saying, well, I want to eat an omelet, so I'll go buy a, a you know a, a hen farm or something. Why why do I want to do this? If if you're interested in the technology, why don't you get the technology? Why do you buy the company? Well, but sometimes because because sometimes it's very hard. You know, I I think it's this might be industry specific, but um, depending on how core the technology is to you. What, and depending what is it that you're trying to achieve, you do different things. Sometimes you don't want the golden egg, you want the goose. So what that means is you want the team that was able to develop that innovation and who has but, the expertise, but, but you want to bring it inside. Team's going to fly away, the goose is going to fly away, sooner or later. You know, part of the, the changes in companies is be good, be, be Part of the changes we all need to make is become very wise at keeping the goose happy. Uh, and often, by the way, remember, if the goose is going to get very fat with the acquisition, usually you ask them to sign contracts for a few years. Most companies, you know, you buy them for a few hundred million, you ask the top skills to sign a contract, otherwise you don't buy them. Uh, so, and also you want the customer base, if they were out there, and the technology, I mean, it's all a package. I, I view that companies like IBM and Microsoft are primarily, let me use the term, global system integrators. That our jobs are to find the best ideas from wherever they are in universities, internally, partners, and whatever, and solve problems for our clients in the marketplace. And the clients generally could care less whether this is something developed inside or whether you found it at Duke and, and then get a license from Duke. They just could care less. Let me add just one thing to the, that thinking. One of the other things that happens and this has been a very painful thing for Microsoft to understand, is it's very, very good to bring in people who don't share your life experience living in Seattle, Washington in the rain. I mean, it is, it, it is very good. It is, it is a, uh, and, and, and it's a phenomena of big organizations. The not invented here thing really does exist. The problem of organ rejection really does exist. And so people who get into these things, you know, are always looking around to say, well, who's, which guy has the sharp knife who's going to stab me in the back today who I don't know? You know, it is a threat to the existing organization when somebody comes in from the outside. Uh, and you have to figure out in your culture how to make accommodations for that kind of thing. That's true for IBM. It's true for Microsoft. It's true for any large company that becomes, I mean, look, you're all there breathing your, the same exhaust. You got your mouth wrapped around the same tailpipe, got a little rubber band around your mouth, and man, you're all, you know, you're all breathing that stuff in there. And you start to believe it. Make it sound so compelling. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's, 
but all I'm trying to make is that this, this whole idea of open innovation and, and whether or not you buy the company and all of that because you really want to get the, 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 the skill set beyond what the product is, I happen to agree that that makes a lot of sense. But one of the things you do get to that is a second order effect, and that is you get ideas that you otherwise wouldn't come up with. I'm going to go to John and then Ian, and then there's one question in the back, and we got about three minutes. So, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, morning, gentlemen. My name is Tom Gillespie. I'm with a nonprofit research institute in Rockville, Maryland. It's a lovely drive down here this morning. Um, my question is uh, really rooted in another person's comment. Um, one of the principal obstacles that we see in dealing with the inventor is. As you said, the crazy person in Sheboygan, Idaho, probably gets lost in, you know, in the phone system. That might not be a huge, terrible loss. Whereas a sophisticated entrepreneur who manages to incorporate and actually has a good idea gets lost in that same wash. And so when speaking about sort of bilateral innovation and trying to get good ideas out, I think that there have definitely been some steps taken, as the panelists described, to take ideas like at Microsoft that you can't use and put them in places where they can be leveraged and properly commercialized. The problem is, is that I don't necessarily hear any solutions for reaching out to competent entrepreneurs that have great ideas and creating an environment where they feel like they'll be taken seriously and not screwed over. Because every inventor I talk to who has any sense says, why in the world would I want to go talk to a big company? They're going to bully me and give me a contract and say, this is it. And they know that they have all the leverage, so why would I want to do that? And then a lot of great ideas die on the operating table for lack of funding. Because as the gentleman said, only 5% of good business plans get VC funding. And a lot of times, a lot of them die there. So that's the interrupt that I'm really interested in. And I was curious as to any solutions you have for that particular problem. Well, that's the whole question about do you have management systems in place that are receptive? My argument is it's pretty imperfect right now. Marshall, if, if I could just sort of add my question on top of that. Maybe we could. Um, my, you know, the, the, the <coughs> this discussion of trust sort of sparked this idea in my head, and maybe everybody's had this before. But um, the panel is about markets for intellectual property, and I wonder why are we talking about trust if the subject is markets? Well, in a, in a market, you'd think, well, I, if somebody's going to sell me something, I want to know that the product I'm buy, you know, that I want is actually in the box or something. You know, it's just a question of, of a certain amount of information. But really, that's not the issue that we're talking about here. And it's this notion of collaboration that's sort of intruding on this market notion. And I'm, I'm wondering if we've got these things mixed up in a way that's not very helpful. A relationship, you know, a market relationship, the paradigm is a transaction. You know, you give me X, I give you Y, you know, we're done. Maybe, I, maybe there's sort of a residual, you have to help me or answer questions or something for a little while. But it's a, it's a transaction-oriented notion, whereas this idea of collaboration uh, involves an ongoing, sort of ongoing performance on both sides. And that requires trust in the sense that you will do what uh, you say you will do. And by the way, 
if, if I'm a little guy negotiating with Microsoft, I would be foolish to trust the organization in the sense of, of some sort of ethical uh, notion of trust. I, I, would, I would think need to rely on um, a judgment that it's in Microsoft's interest to continue to perform in the way they say they will. And so that's a judgment um, that I'd have to make. And if, if I'm wrong, well, shame on me. Somebody better will succeed where I failed. Whereas if I'm right, you know, that's, uh, that's the way these things work. So uh, really, just to reformulate it, is this notion of collaboration in markets, are, are they um, getting in the way of each other here or not? So, so, so John, uh, let me get, tell you a story. Suppose you fly to India. You land at 2 or 2 in the morning. You go out. You take a cab to wherever you're supposed to go. You've never been to, to this place. You are trusting this cab driver to take you to this place, not take you to a remote spot and take all your money, which the guy could probably do, or at least you were, you know, a frailer-looking guy, less dangerous-looking, you might do that. Sounds like Microsoft. Well, but, but, the, but the point is, not, not only that, and then once he drops you off, you actually pay the guy. Once you're there, you have no compulsions to pay. You say, okay, well, if I don't pay, he'll make, a, he'll, he'll, he'll make a big song and dance about it, make a racket. The guy can do that in any case. You, you owe him 50 rupees. He knows you have more than that in your pocket. You pay him 50 rupees, the guy says, oh, he hasn't paid me. The fact of the matter is we, we, we rely on trust not in the sense of, oh, this guy will take care of my kids when I'm dead. Not that trust. <laughs> but, but this trust that there is this, there's, there's a defined transaction and that we'll both live up to our side, you know? I mean, we do deal with this all the time. You call some guy from a phone book, come fix my pipe. You know, the, the pipe in you know, Pittsburgh, I live in Pittsburgh, pipe. all kinds of problems with the old houses. The guy could come and do whatever he wanted. You know, I know nothing about houses. You know, the guy says, well, this, this whatchamacallit is bad and it's going to cost you 400 bucks. At that point, yeah, you pay yeah. the guy 400 bucks. But I must admit, I took the trust issue completely differently. I think that maybe you and I are aligned. In the IP licensing business, if the overall premise is you win, I win, if you had a grand slam, give me a single. And so, so if that trust is there, now if, if it bombs, maybe you cover my expenses or whatever, but, but that motto of you win, I win, and free and open discussion of where your technology could go. If it's closed and, and it's, we're not going to tell you, well then you know what you're dealing against. You probably want to go to another company that's more open with their potential plans. So to me, is it a royalty-based model, or is it a, here's X amount of dollars and go away? We'll go to Horacio in a second, and then one more question. We've got to quit. But the, 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 the reason there's an intersection there is because when you're talking about transferring high technology, whether it be in the drug context uh, or how to market the drug or in the IT industry, whether it's product incorporation or things like that, is you need some ongoing support to make the transaction work. And so you get into this, this, this thing about support and trust as opposed to an anonymous market, whether you like it or not. And unfortunately, that, that's the cir circumstance we're in. Let me go to Horacio, and then there's a question back there, and we'll finish up. Well, what, what? But, I think it's a, but I think it's an interesting, I, I think it's actually a useful way to look at it. There are some aspects of the way the market operates that's that's mostly transactional. You know, I can go and I can do my due diligence and I can determine that someone has a patent portfolio that's a seminal patent portfolio in my mind for a certain area of technology that I'm moving into. And I can go and say, you know, 
I don't like you. I don't, I, I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are. But I know what these patents are, and I want to buy them. And I don't want to talk to you anymore. I just want you to give me the I'll hand the money. You give me the patents and just go away. And some of that happens out there in the market today. You know, there's, there's an auction system. I can go to an Ocean Tomo uh, auction. I, you know, I can do my own due diligence. I don't even have to talk to the owner of the patents. And I, that's a transaction. There's no relational aspect to it. When you talk about collaborative innovation, it does get a little different. In some areas, the lines are blurred. And in some areas, by definition, you have to have trust because you're talking about joint development of a technology that doesn't exist. When you're talking about partnering with someone to invent something that didn't exist, trust is paramount. And, and these are just points in a spectrum. And all of those actually have a role to play in the broad market for innovation and IP that we're discussing. Question back there. Yeah, my name is David Bliven with Lighthouse Partners. Um, my question, you mentioned earlier the lag time between having an idea, applying for an for a patent and then typically waiting five years um, on average to receive the patent. So my question really relates to, from a marketability standpoint, the difference per, um, in the market between, say, a patent pending or a uh, received patent. And I think to Jeff Clark's maybe comment earlier, from a practical standpoint, doesn't that put most entrepreneurs in the position really of having to take their ideas to the market and create a business around the idea versus waiting five years to then have something that they could theoretically sell. And so is there a market for patents pending? Um, or how is that different from the, uh, the market for patents that have been awarded? Well, I'll just quickly, uh, the problem with patent pending is you don't know that it's ever going to issue. And uh, invariably, there are office actions or, you know, or, or questions raised by patent examiners that have to be answered. Uh, there is a question of whether there's prior art available in the world that says that shouldn't have been patented in the first place. Uh, so patent pending are nice to have, I would, I would, I would say, but uh, they're not as valuable as actual patents uh, for the obvious reasons that they don't really exist. Now, then the question is, well, what do you do about that? And the answer is, geez, we ought to stop Congress from diverting funds from the patent system, which they historically have done every year uh, because it's revenue and they can use it for wars or whatever they want to use it for, uh, whatever thing feels good at the time. Uh, and the answer is to get that damn latency period down to where it's practical and, uh, and the fact that you have a patent pending really means something and it's going to mean something sooner rather than later. I mean, that's a bad answer, but that's the only one I have. Wes, I'll let you... Okay, one, and that, this will have to be it because otherwise nobody's going to get lunch. So I can speak directly to that question. Uh, I've done some research on, on the relationship between new ventures holding patents or having patent applications pending and their probability of getting funding. And the interesting thing you can see in these data is that the venture capital community doesn't seem to care very much about issued patents. What they really care about is the pipeline and the pending patents. So even kind of a, you know, a statistical horse race about what, you know, whether count up issued patents or count up patent applications, the variable which can explain getting funding is, is, is the pipeline, uh, specifically for software. So I'd like to thank the panel. Uh, I think we convene again at what, 1.15. And so lunch next.